Hello and welcome to the Energy Intelligence Global LNG podcast. I'm I'm Mike Sultan. I'm the editor of LNG Intelligence, one of the components of our global LNG service. I'm here with my friend Ian Nathan, EI's director of uh, LNG research. Are uh, you ready, Ian? Uh, I am, Mike. Uh, thanks. You know, I, I'm I'm looking forward to this uh, this podcast because. Uh, as you and I have been discussing for for quite some time now, there is uh, there's really quite a lot to unpack uh, in the wake of this Russia-Ukraine conflict, with really potentially transformational implications for the global gas ecosystem. Uh, now we'll only have a chance to cover a few of those items uh, in in the short time we have here today, uh, but I, I do think we'll manage to tackle some of the important pieces of the puzzle. So uh, so let's get started. Yeah, well, yeah, we're going to go talk about Europe's short-term gas LNG game in light of the Russian invasion, and basically, you know, to to reduce the use of Russian gas, what can Europe do, and what can't Europe do, uh, and and what are the global implications of the conflict for LNG prices and projects? Uh, what I want to start out with, with all the news now is about European plans to get off Russian gas. Europe has sounds very resolute. All these all these government plans floating around. We've seen all this scrambling. But but the interesting thing is, you know, who's not scrambling is Poland and Lithuania. Um, what's kind of been lost here in the news cycle is that Poland and Lithuania have been working on independence from Russian gas for a very long time. I mean, this is not new. They knew the threat. They knew the implications. Uh, Lithuania started importing LNG in 2014. Poland in 2015. Uh, they've been working day and night and getting off Russian gas for at least 10 years, uh, including contracting for supply and everything that goes into getting those things set up. So, you know, and, and even there, with all the LNG, 3 million tons a year or 3 million tons last year going into Poland, for example, and the Baltic pipe that, uh, that they're working on, Poland will only be off Russian gas by the end of this year, despite all that effort. So uh, on the one hand, the good news is that Poland contributes to the overall freedom from Russian gas. But the bad news is that Europe has a long road ahead. So so that brings us back to the question, you know, what can Europe do? What are the short term wins? No, and it's it's an important one. And if you look at it in, in the context of, of the, the Poland and Lithuania experiences, uh, you, you'll see that the, the point that you made is really important. It, it took uh, not just foresight, but it took a lot of time to to set up the mechanisms to, uh, you know, to to really be free of of Russian gas, and and that's I think a, a key lesson that uh, that we can take from from that experience. So while we're now seeing, I guess, what really amounts to a scramble uh, to to make changes. Uh, you know, I think what we've learned is that uh, the scramble is going to take some time. And, uh, you know, I think that brings us to the question that you are, are asking, and that is, you know, what, what can Europe do? And, and, you know, where are the short-term, uh, where the short-term wins? And, you know, I think that the very, very, very short answer to that is there's, there's not a lot uh, that can be done uh, in the short term. And, and when I say short term, let's just call that this year. Uh, I think right now, you know, we, we can look at this as a race against the clock before next winter. And, and I do think that there are, are, are very much short-term components and, and much longer-term components to the, the broader plan to change the way, you know, Europe buys uh, and consumes gas. And, you know, and I think when we get right down to it, the short-term piece comes down to uh, really the market. It's that energy security is going to be governed largely by market forces uh, in the near term. Uh, and, and the market has been working. Uh, and if we exclude, for instance, Spain and Portugal, which are largely disconnected from the rest of the European gas market, 
you know, we've seen incremental LNG volumes into Europe are, are, are up considerably uh, this past winter compared to the previous winter. And U.S. volumes are on track to meet the recent 15 billion cubic uh, meter per annum uh, commitment that was announced recently. It's also worth mentioning what, what happens beyond this year. Uh, I, I think that's really important as well. So what about 2023 and beyond? On the assumption that that contract sanctity holds and on the assumption that sanctions don't target gas sales directly, uh, replacing Russian gas, or at least some Russian gas, will be a staggered affair over the course of this decade. You know, but I think there's another point here as well. And I think that even more importantly, or arguably <laughs> more importantly, uh, replacing Russian gas and, and other gas supply related solutions, we need to pay attention to efficiency programs. Uh, along with accelerated renewables and and penetration of other fuels, uh, all of this that could potentially result in less gas needed overall. And so, you know, really the goal here is not just to to buy less Russian gas, but to buy less gas. And and we really don't want that point to get lost in the broader discussion. Oh, I was just going to say that that uh, you know, just among uh, just along, uh, as far as the other short term wins are concerned, I, I also was noting, you know, this potential for minimum storage requirements, this idea uh, that had been floated. And I'm intrigued by it. Uh, I, I think that uh, it'll be interesting to see if if uh, if adequate supply uh, before next winter can be shored up. Uh, it'll be expensive. It'll have to be done quickly. Um, and that's to say nothing of obvious questions about the economic rationale, for uh, you know, which usually means storing cheap gas so that you can sell it you know, into premium markets when the time comes. Uh, um, but anyway, I, I think that there, there's some interesting things there. Yeah. Well, yeah. And pushing the economic, pushing the storage beyond where the economic rationale is going to be, it's going to be interesting to see how that works itself out. Um, I was looking at, at some of the, uh, the, the plans that have been put forward. I, I think it'll be most interesting to see if there's the, if this uptick in LNG contracting that we saw last year continues this year with a wider group of buyers, including European utilities and mostly for, for us, particularly for us volume. You know, I think that, that, that's an important point, um, that, that deserves just a, I think a few more words because, you know, we, we saw a lot of contracting last year. You know, it was dominated by Chinese companies, Chinese buyers, both first and second tier buyers, uh, a lot of portfolio players, traders, and and several of the other Asian growth markets. And as the the crisis, I would say the, the price crisis started to evolve way before the uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I, I, we're already asking ourselves where are the European buyers looking to you know shore up their energy security through more contracting. And, and now we're already toward the end of March and, and still waiting to see how this is going to play out. And, and that will be a very important signpost. And, and you know, to be sure, you know, that's not to say that European buyers haven't been out there. I mean, we know that several have been signing up for US LNG. So we don't, we don't want to give the wrong impression. But uh, under these circumstances and under these conditions, I think there is an expectation that we should be seeing more of that throughout this year. Yeah, that, among looking at the plans, that was the one item that stood out to me. It's like, well, if they can get more long-term contracting to spark new projects, that's a long-term question, though. But um, well, let's go on to uh, we're going to look at the global implications of the con of the conflict. Uh, you know, the impact of high spot LNG prices. We what we find when I an LNG intelligence every every story worldwide seems to have some connection. Well, has a there's a ripple effect from the from the Ukraine crisis everywhere. 
Um, so we're going to look at some of those those implications. You want to go over some of some of those, especially the uh, the pricing impact. Oh, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I think this is a uh, also an underappreciated point. I think there's a lot of chatter out there about energy security. Uh, it's 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 completely valid, but uh, at, at what cost? And uh, and 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 really, at this point, you know, we're looking at at, at punishingly high prices that uh, you know that do have implications. So let's quickly look at look at the spot price uh, situation. We, we see several factors that could influence uh, the direction of spot prices through the rest of the year. And that includes the intensity of the conflict. It includes actual disruptions to Russian gas flows. Uh, it also includes uh, perhaps unusual European gas inventory movements. Uh, and it also it also includes Asian LNG demand. Um, you know, and that's something to pay attention to. And all of these are potential drivers for additional upheaval uh, that could push both TTF and Asian spot prices out of this twenty-five to thirty-five dollar per million BTU range in which they seem to have settled. Uh, of course, <laughs> save for some occasional spikes, uh, but. Uh, we also don't rule out the fact that you know, potentially uh, that the spring season could have a potentially calming effect uh, on the market. You know, so watch out for that. But on the term side, uh, you know, on oil indexation, uh, you know, high and and potentially rising oil prices uh, and upward pressure on slopes are seemingly discouraging for for buyers. You know, we also see that oil prices will you know come down over the much longer term uh, into. Uh, into the 70s through the end of this decade and into the 60s by next decade, roughly speaking. Uh, and that should make long-term deals more palatable uh, than they appear to be now. And of course, we can't forget that there's still, uh, there's still impetus for buyers to want to reduce exposure to the spot market. And I, you know that was what was beh- behind a lot of the long-term deal making that you saw last year. Uh, and we, you know, we had expected that for a while, and sure enough, it it did manage to <laughs> to materialize, uh, and it was really, really quite quite something. You know, to be fair, you know, maybe the oil indexation piece of this conversation, maybe that has a little bit less uh, resonance for European buyers, but for buyers from Asian growth markets where long term demand will be more price inelastic. I, I think they should appreciate this, and um, you know, and I think it should be an important consideration that you know, no matter what sort of volatility you might be seeing this year, where we can see potentially a floor of ninety dollars a barrel to perhaps one hundred twenty, thirty, forty, or, or more by the summer, you know, over the much much longer term, uh, you know, this is not uh, not expected to be the case under our our base case transition expectations. You know, so there's definitely a a price. Uh, price implication. It's not just the spot market; it is for the the term term side of things, and it impacts all buyers. Yeah, I've noticed in the last couple of weeks the uh, Asian spot LNG prices are our, our assessment, energy intelligence assessments. Sometimes they're higher than Europe, sometimes they're lower than Europe. It's quite it's, uh, and I I tend to think that some of that volatility is is inhibiting some of the deal making, probably, or in in getting a handle on how to uh, structure deals, possibly. You know, I, I think it's it's a it's a hugely important point. Um, you know, we we do know that uh, you know in looking at the long term contracting last year, you know, we we had noticed that there were uh, several growth market buyers that we had expected to be uh, in the market fishing around for deals and perhaps concluding a few, and and I think that they were, um, but the market did seem to be a little bit too hot to handle. 
um, and it's probably still too hot to handle. And um, and there is, I think, a lot more to unpack on the pricing side of things. And and of course, if we had, you know, more time, we could uh, do an entire podcast uh, on just that because there is an awful lot to say. Um, so I, th- I think you know, I think with that, maybe you know, we can move on to the next piece of this, which is I, I think going to be on a lot of people's minds. Uh, you know, right now, uh, as the expectations for for ongoing long-term uh, purchase and consumption of Russian gas uh, is is called into question. Uh, yeah, we're 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 noticing. I mean, obviously, the U.S. is the key place to look for for new LNG capacity. I mean, for one thing, there's there's a tremendous amount of capacity in various stages of of development. Uh, so supply opportunity is enormous, uh, and it's it's been for quite a while. Um, you can also, you know, there's supportive market conditions. Not, not, there's also the, um, you know, the destination flexible model has has worked very well in a number of circumstances that no one would, could have foreseen, under uh, every and all kinds of everything from COVID to the Ukraine things. That that's going to be a key aspect going forward. Um, several projects, uh, several U.S. projects have been fully approved by regulators for a while. But what would make the U.S. even more attractive for capacity development is a pullback in regulations. It doesn't doesn't quite look in the cards of the current administration. They they added a layer just before the uh, invasion of Ukraine, and they then they retracted it. It's it's not a it doesn't seem like it's not a solid fullback. Well, no, no. I mean, I I I think this is this is something that's going to be on on the minds of a, of a lot of folks. Which is if if we're hearing. If we're hearing announcements about you know U.S. Uh, efforts and cooperation to provide volumes, uh, you know it would seem that you know that one of the ways to do this uh, outside of the market really doing the work for you is you know use this tool, which is uh, you know the regulatory system. Yeah, right. I mean, I think that's that's you know that's that's an important tool that that seems to be at the administration's disposal. I think as you're you're mentioning, it's about where we really are right now. Yeah, they don't seem to, currently don't seem to be, I mean, they will always, the, a whole bunch of, many different, um, the, the administration line seems to be that, well, we've permitted quite a few projects, why don't you develop those? And that's uh, that's a fair point, but also as, as you were, uh, you, made a, you made a great point last week about the, you know, there's a misalignment between there could be misalignment between the buyers and the projects. The more projects you have permitted, the more of a smorgasbord of, uh, of choices they have and the more likely you're going to have some kind of deal. So, you know, just because just because they have a I mean, it's a sizable set of, of projects approved, but it's not necessarily the right ones or the ones that fit with other partners. So um, it's it, at least they had they thought about it properly and, and brought those uh, brought the advanced regulations and dropped the ones they did before the war and dropped the back. But it's still, it's not, it's not a real solid commitment to a, a, a real relook at what FERC's regulations are and how long it should take for a project to be approved. And that, I think that brings us to the important point here, the other important point, which is uh, really our expectations for, for those, uh, you know, for commercial commitments to, to support projects beyond those that, that were gaining momentum last year. Uh, because this is really at the heart of this uh, supply opportunity question, and it's it's not just the U.S., but it, it's it's globally. But but the U.S., of course, uh, you know, being being this huge opportunity, um, I think there's there's there are a few things to say there. Yeah, and we're and now we're just uh, I mean, 
we, we've been waiting to see additional supply deal announcements from a wider group of ventures and projects. And now, just now, even in this, uh, you know, emergency situation, we're, we're just starting to pick up on a few. Uh, there was uh, Lake Charles, Rio Grande, uh, some preliminary deals with Commonwealth last year. We're waiting to be, see if they become firm. Uh, we're just starting to see a, a pickup. There's been lots of discussions. There's been lots of uh, discussion of discussions of lots of uh, lots of context going on, but not any uh, a firm commercial momentum, or at least a limited amount. That could change. It could change quickly. Right. I mean, and that's that's really at the heart of of, of this question, which is uh, we, we need to 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 see a lot of the. Uh, a lot of the excitement and momentum that we saw last year, we need to see that translate a little bit more into firm deals supporting new projects. I mean, it's it's great to to sign long term deals, but if it's with existing ventures and a portfolio player, and uh, you know, but is not supporting a new venture, it, it's not going to build new capacity. And that's a point that we've been making for quite some time, um, you know. And 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 that's that's key now. Uh, what's different is is that we need to watch to see if buyers will pay more for energy security. That's really the key question, uh, you know, and, and that and that's something that uh, you know could perhaps give ventures that have been progressing more slowly uh, 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 the boost that they need. But I think we also need to watch for uh, we need to watch for for capacity increments that are easier to execute. I, I think that uh, disruption <laughs> to a major source of global gas supply, uh, like Russia, for example, uh, will necessitate a faster developments. So not just more developments, but faster developments. And those are the the the, the, the pieces that uh, we're watching to see. And I think that you know some of the announcements that you've heard, you know, recently, you know, perhaps some of them have been fast tracked. Perhaps some of them have been in the works for quite some time and are not really related to the the Russia-Ukraine conflict or or upheaval in the global gas system. Um, but I, I think that a lot of the announcements that you will hear in the coming weeks and months are going to be a combination of the two. No, it's been hard to identify a, a, uh, a genuine change in trajectory of the build-out. It's, it's, it will take some time before we can sort of tease out that that's, that the trajectory has actually changed beyond behind-the-scenes discussion. So. But I think for now, I mean, this is, I, I think these are really some of those, those key questions, you know, the, the short-term wins uh, for Europe and the longer-term implications, you know, and I, I think that if we had more time, we can certainly go uh, further and deeper into a lot of these things and, uh, and several other factors as well uh, that, uh, that will really, uh, you know, really be important to this, you know, this, this really monumental transformation that we're about to see. So, Mike, I'll turn it over to you for for any closing remarks before we say goodbye. Well, just to sum up this, you know, this just this isn't just a Europe story, but but what Europe does affects the entire market, affects the entire global market. It will be interesting to see how this uh, how this plays out. Um, I want to thank thank you, Ian, and uh, everyone for listening to the Energy Intelligence Podcast. Um, please check back with us soon for our latest content, which you can find at energyintel.com. Mm-hmm.